Well, as we uh, looked at the last time, Paul was greatly comforted by the return of Titus from Corinth and specifically uh, that he brought back good news. Remember, he sent Titus to them with a letter which was called a severe letter uh, which called out the saints at Corinth on their sin. Right? He had a terrible visit with them when he was trying to deal with their questioning and doubting of his apostolic ministry and authority fueled on by the false apostles and false teachers who had infiltrated Corinth. And on this visit, which uh, we don't have recorded, uh, things went sideways for him there. For it seems he was maliciously and verbally, publicly attacked uh, by someone or some people in the church, calling him a fraud, a deceiver, and whatnot. And the church at large did nothing about it. The church just stood by and let it happen. And their apathy and their lack of concern for God's apostle and for the truth, it hurt Paul, it hurt him. So he goes back to Ephesus and he writes them a very pointed letter. He's hammering them on their sin. And he was waiting for Titus to return to tell him how the Corinthians received that letter. And when Titus returns, he tells them they received it well. They received it well. And at first, Paul feels sorry that his letter made them sorrowful. But his sorrow soon dissipated and turned to joy. Why? Because the Corinthian sorrow was godly sorrow. And that led to repentance. Then Paul shows them how godly sorrow was Godward and not worldly. For worldly sorrow doesn't lead to repentance nor to salvation, but he says it leads to death. But godly sorrow leads to restoration with God and to the saints, and and it's a proof and an assurance of one's salvation. Uh, For Paul, he says that no one has ever regretted godly sorrow. No one has ever regretted from repenting of their sin. It may be hard. uh, It may be hurtful. Uh, And it may come with unwanted circumstances, but never regret it. Uh, Because the saints' relationship with their Lord is restored, uh, and with the saints, and there again is their peace and joy restored as well. Now, in verse 11 and following, Paul will show them how uh, he knows their sorrow was godly and that their repentance was real. And he knows this through Titus' report. Uh, And he He does so by telling them what has come from their repentance, what fruit was born from their repentance. You see, change and fruit always come from repentance. John the Baptist told the scribes and Pharisees in Luke uh, Luke 3, bear fruits worthy of repentance. And the Corinthians did indeed do that. And now to encourage them, he's going to list them. He's going to list them. And what I'd like to do today is look at verses 11 to 16 by considering what came out of Paul's severe letter in a sermon titled, The Fruit of Repentance. And I'll use three points. The fruit from the letter, the purpose of the letter, and finally, the joy from the letter. And let's look at verse 11, which we'll spend most of our time, the fruit from the letter. And I'll read that again. For observe, he says this very thing that you sorrowed in a godly manner. What diligence it produced in you, what clearing of yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what vehement desire, what zeal, what vindication. In all things you proved yourselves to be clear in this matter. Paul said he rejoices, not that they were made sorrowful, uh, but their sorrow turned to repentance. 
that they had godly sorrow and not worldly sorrow. Uh, and now he, he points their attention uh, to what their godly sorrow and repentance produced. So he starts by saying, For observe, behold, look, look at this very thing. Look at the fruit your repentance produced. And, and fruit from, uh, from repentance is absolute evidence that repentance is real. And it is an assurance that one is really a child of God. Now remember that repentance is a change of mind about your sin, which leads to a change of behavior. So as we said last week, it's a U-turn. You're going this way, and now you go the other way. You go the other way. You can say you repent over sin, but unless there is a change in your life concerning that sin, well, the truth is you haven't really repented. Therefore, the liar stops lying. The fornicator stops fornicating. The thief stops stealing. Well, Paul wants to encourage the Corinthian saints with evidence of their repentance. You know, sometimes it's easier for others to see the change in us than for us ourselves, right? Uh, and, and, and because it's hard at times to see the change because we live with us. But others could see it maybe sometimes even better. Uh, and, and Paul wants them to behold it uh, and to observe what's going on in their lives as he has heard it from Titus, who went to Corinth, he went with this severe letter, and he saw how they responded to it. He saw how there was a massive shift and a change among them. And sometimes uh, we're encouraged, we encourage a saint by telling them how we see fruit in their life from their repentance. We encourage them. It's just uplifting when those who know about our sin also know about the fruit born from our repentance. So saying, hey brother, I'm really blessed that you have forsaken that sinful relationship and, and have been totally committed to your wife. I'm really blessed by that. So brothers and sisters, don't be stingy on the encouragement. Let the restored saint know you recognize the grace of God in their life. Well, uh, now Paul will give them a list of seven fruits uh, that he sees from their repentance. And they all begin with the word what. Seven what's here. And the fact that he brings what into this thing seven times, instead of just saying what once and then naming the seven things, which you could easily do, uh, it, it tells us something. Uh, the fact that he's making a big deal, uh, 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 making a big point out of each one of them by, by saying what, it shows how important each one of them is. So each one of these seven is an important, is an important what? Uh, and, and these seven fruits are a good barometer of what should follow our repentance. So pay attention because the, uh, the Corinthians are not a special group of Christians here. Right? This, is what re this is what fruit looks like from repentance. From our repentance, it should look like this. So the first fruit is listed is diligence what diligence it produced. And diligence means earnestness, a striving for something. Uh, and it has to do with, with haste. Paul has already said in verse 7 of this chapter that Titus told him of their earnest desire for them. That's the word, earnest. Uh, and it's an earnestness to do something and to do it quickly. Diligence never takes an hour to do what can be done in 10 minutes. And, 
And here it means that the Corinthians quickly obeyed what the Lord had revealed to them in Paul's letter, which we don't have, that severe letter. They aggressively pursued righteousness. They sought to be reconciled with Paul. They wanted their rights, their wrongs to be made right. They wanted to right the wrongs. Uh, where, where before uh, they had been apathetic and lackluster in their response to the, the apostle, now they mean business. Now they are earnest. Gone was the indifference toward their sin. God was their complacency with evil and with deception. Now they had a strong desire to do what was right and to restore their broken relationship with the apostle Paul. And they weren't beaten into this, right? Titus didn't come and beat them into this. No, their hearts were filled with godly sorrow and it resulted in an earnestness an earnestness to live holy again. Uh, for, for, for many times, do we, do we not let sin issues in our lives just linger? We know they're there, hoping somehow they just go away. Or hoping, or maybe, they just don't bother us that much. But we need to be diligent here. We can't stand around and casually correct our sin problems. No, we need to deal with them immediately. That's why Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, if your right hand causes you to sin, what did he say? Massage it a little bit, right? Work it out a little bit. No, cut it off. He's not being literal. Right? He's being figurative here. But he's saying is do surgery on sin. Your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. Now, if he was being literal, we would all, all only have left eyes and left hands. But he's not. He's saying, listen, don't let it go. Don't be comfortable with it. Deal with it quickly, radically, like surgery, right? That's what he's saying. Can't wait and sit around until something moves us or we're in the mood. We need to be like the Corinthians who diligently dealt with their sins and who diligently sought to once again submit to Paul's authority. So the point here is, we can't ask God to forgive us of our sin and then take our sweet time to crucify it. That's the point. So then you ask God to forgive you for not being forgiving to someone. Well, you know what the fruit of repentance is? You immediately forgive that person. You don't make them pay. You don't wait until the time is right. You forgive or you can plead with God to help you from stop being sexually immoral. But do you know what the fruit of repentance is there? You stop being sexually immoral. So then it tells the other person it's over. It shuts down the porn sites. It gets accountability from a brother or a sister. It takes steps radically to get rid of it. Thus the great desire of, of one who repents is not to keep committing that sin again and to shake it off and to avoid it down the road. And I am fearful that, that we may be more diligent in doing well in our jobs, in, 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 in working on our house, or, or decorating our apartments, or planning out our schedule, than we are when it comes to dealing with our sin. For diligence deals with sin. The second fruit, born from repentance. The second what? Is what clearing 
of yourselves. What clearing of yourselves? And the word clearing is the Greek word apologia, uh, which is to make a speech in defense. We see this word used in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15, where Peter says, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and always be ready to give a defense. There's the word, give a defense to everyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. So, so let the Lord know and let others know about your repentance. If they know that you have sinned, and of course the Lord does, let them know you've repented and that God has forgiven you. All right, so set the record straight verbally. Admit your sin. Don't try to hide it. Don't keep it hush-hush. Make no excuses before God and before man. And... and and with this, there is a desire of being cleared from the guilt and shame of sin. The Corinthians wanted to clear their name, to reverse the stigma of their sins, and rid themselves of this baggage of sin that they had, and prove themselves to be trustworthy again. Thus, they wanted others to know that, that they're not like the disobedient children who they once were to Paul. That's not us anymore. You need to know we've repented and we're, we're trusting in the Lord again and trusting in his apostle. The third what? The third fruit of repentance. He says is what indignation. What indignation. This is an important one. What, they're all important, but this one I, it struck me. What indignation? And indignation means wrath. But not wrath against God and not wrath against men, but wrath, wrath against ourselves because of our own sin. It's wrath against me because of my sin. It's wrath against you because of your sin. The Corinthians were outraged over their sin. They hated their disloyalty to the Apostle Paul. They hated their reluctance to deal with the man who had grievously sinned against Paul. They hated that they had fallen prey to the lies and deceit of the false apostles and false teachers who were in Corinth. I mean, how could we do those things? How could we sin against the Lord and against his apostle? How could we sin against someone who has loved us so much and who has spent himself for us and has suffered for our sakes? So they had righteous indignation over their sins and against themselves. They were angry over the shame it had brought uh, on the Lord's name. I mean, look what we've done. Look how we have, have smudged and diminished the gospel in the eyes of others. Look what we've done to the church his son, his gospel, and of course the apostle Paul. So they had a holy hatred for their sin, a holy hatred for this, and this is critical, holy hatred. Uh, they saw their sin for exactly what it was, and they were disgusted with themselves, for they hurt Paul and brought disgrace to the glorious gospel which they said they loved. Uh, and, and, and so what you have is they hate the sin they once cherished, It's not this, this person or that person they hate or even the consequences that they're suffering because of their sins, but it's their sin. It's easy to hate the consequences, right? We, don't, we, we sin and then we pay for that in some way, shape, or form, right? But it's not even that. One man said this, he who would be angry and not sin must be angry at nothing but sin. He who would be angry and not sin must be angry at nothing but sin. 
And first and foremost, it has to be our own sin. First and foremost, it has to be our own sin. So listen, we have to have indignation towards our sin. We have to hate it. We have to hate it. And it begs the question, do you hate your sin? Do you have wrath against yourself because of your sin? Or it's like, well, everybody does it. Right? Do you hate it? Because if you do, you have a very sensitive heart, spiritually speaking. That's good. We want to hate our sin. We have to beg God to help us to hate our sin. We have to view it with indignation. We have to view it as filthy. We have to view it as filthy. We want it out of our lives. It's like having poison ivy. Who says when they have poison ivy? If you ever had it, you know what I'm saying. Uh, I hope it it only stays for like three weeks. No, take it away today. You know, we're itch up a storm. We want it out of it. It's like having a toothache. Ask Mike Archer. You just want it gone. You don't say, well, you know, I could take this for two or three weeks. I want it to go. I want it to go. So brothers, until we are indignant of pornography and lusting after women, we will never truly forsake it. Until any sin becomes foul, like the stench of a New York City sewer, and I got to believe that's as bad as it gets, we will keep going back to it. Until we see our sin as disgusting and ugly and vile and horrendous, we will keep drinking from that sewer of sin. We just will. We got to hate it. And we got to beg God to help us hate it. It's, the, the Satan of, it's, it's, the, it's, it's, it's Satan's great deception to make us think our sin is not, it's just not good. But it's not really that bad. Oh, I shouldn't do this. It's not good. It's wrong. But it's not horrendous. Everybody does it. I'm not alone. Everybody has weaknesses. We all do. Nobody's perfect. Here's what I hear with them. We're all human. Oh, all right, well, but all human sin. All right? Rather, we must see our sin as a high and holy offense against God. And instead of going soft on it, uh, we should be asking, how could I sin so easily against the one who loves me? Because what we, when we sin against God, we sin against love. Right? For God so loved us, he sent his son for us. Nothing will separate us from the love of, of, of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord, right? And so we sin against the one who loves us. Isn't it hurt our own souls when we sin against our parents? Doesn't it bother you when you sin against your mother or your father? Well, you sin against your children. You love them. They love you. How can we so blatantly sin against, against someone that we love and loves us? How can I be filled with such pride and think I'm something and that I deserve something? when Jesus humbled himself all the way to the cross to save me. And should we not have indignation against ourselves for our sin? I say, yes, we should. Another man said, he who hates sin will never admit to terms of peace with their sin. He who hates sin, they'll never admit to terms of peace with this and they'll never make an allowance. All right, you know, I'm just, I just can't watch that kind of thing anymore. I'm going to slay that thing. And someone else said, if people would spend more time being angry against their sins, they would not be so angry with their brethren. 
right? And not be so angry with their brethren. So if you hate your sin, you battle against it. If you hate your sin, you battle against it. Right? You, you won't let it become comfortable or normal or somehow try to justify it for it seems so easy that we fall into it. But like the Corinthians, we must hate it and hate ourselves for it, if you will, for falling into it. But that said, we can't stay mired, so to speak, in the memory of our sin against God. For, for if we confess our sin, as we read today in 1 John 1, 9, uh, if, we, if we confess our sin... God is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We don't keep carrying it and carrying it. When we confess it, we've taken it to the cross, we've begged God to forgive it, and we know he forgives us if we truly come his way, then we let it go. We don't keep carrying that. We can't keep repenting of sins we've repented of over and over again because that means we don't really believe God has forgiven us in the first place. And that's an affront as well. And we need to remember, Psalm 103 says that as far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgressions from us. God doesn't carry them. He's not going to keep bringing them back. He's forgiven you. It's as if they go from there to there and they never meet again. Or as we read in Micah 7, uh, he asks the question, who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over the transgressions of the remnant of his heritage? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in mercy. He will again have compassion on us and will subdue our iniquities. You will cast all of our sins into the depth of the sea. It's like this. He takes all of your sin and he goes, I guess, to the deepest part of the sea, probably the Pacific Ocean somewhere, and he throws it in the middle of it and it sinks to the bottom never to come up again. In other words, I don't hold it against you anymore. It's paid for. Amen? Amen. The fourth what? The fourth fruit. What fear? What fear? Fear in this context is not fright or terror, but reverence and awe of God. It is a fear of displeasing Him. As Proverbs 8.13 says, the fear of the Lord is to hate evil. The fear of the Lord is to hate evil. So if you are in awe of God, if you think highly of him, oh, you don't want to sin against him. And you hate your evil. Uh, and you hate all evil because it's an affront to him. Uh, so this is a fear that fears falling into the same sin over and over again. Listen, if you're sniffing roses and you get stung by a bee when you put your nose into that rose, which I am wont to do, I'm telling you, you're not going to be too quick to be sniffing roses again. Or... If you've almost drowned by going to the beach and in the ocean, odds are the next time you go and the time after that, you're staying on the sand because you've been, you've been bitten already. You've, you've suffered already. So if you've committed adultery, you keep yourself from situations that led you to commit adultery. If you've been deceived by a false teacher, you do a thorough examination on anything that anyone comes to you with that is an unorthodox teaching. Now some think this fear is a fear of the Lord's discipline for sin, which it may well be. Uh, and we do see that in 1 Corinthians 11, where some of the saints were abusing the Lord's table and were not repenting. And Paul said, this is why some of them were weak, some of them were sick, and some even slept, which means the Lord took them out of here. So the Corinthian saints lost an awe of God. 
They forgot, as Psalm 31, 31, 19 says, Oh, how great is your goodness, which you have laid up for those who fear you. And again, it's not this. It's all amazement of who he is. They forgot what Job 28, 28 says, that the fear of the Lord, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to depart from evil is understanding. They needed to agree once again with Revelation 15, where we read, Who shall not fear you, O Lord, and glorify your name for you alone are holy. Well, the fifth what? The fifth fruit of repentance, he says, is what vehement desire. What vehement desire. And vehement desire means a great longing for, an intense yearning. Uh, in Luke twenty-two fifteen, we see that Jesus had a, a fervent desire, a great desire to eat the Passover with his disciples before he suffered. Paul used this word back in 7, verse 7 of this chapter, when he said, Titus told us of your earnest desire. Uh, and here it's an earnest desire to be reconciled to Paul, to sit under his teaching once again, to be right with the Lord again and Paul, and to have fellowship with the Lord and Paul again. As we read in 1 John uh, chapter 1, verses 6 and 7, if we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus Christ his son cleanses us from all sin. So the Corinthians wanted to walk in the light again. They longed to walk in the light again. They don't want to keep walking in darkness anymore. And, and this longing is a longing to pursue holiness again. Hebrews 12, 14 says, Pursue peace with all people and holiness, without which no one will see the Lord. This is our, our lifelong pursuit is to live like Christ, right? God doesn't save us and just say, well, do your thing. Let me just let you go and see how it goes. No, 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 no. I've saved you to conform you into the image of my son, and that's holiness. And that's our pursuit. We should want that. We should strive for that. We should be making ground on that. Not perfect. We never will in this life, but that's the goal. And they were longing to discipline themselves unto godliness, as we're told in 1 Timothy 4. So repentance involves this deep desire, a yearning to be restored to God and to those you've sinned against. Uh, and speaking of this, this vehement desire, Thomas Brooks said this, the penitent, the penitent is vehement and fervent in his desires to have his lust, lust subdued, mortified, and destroyed. So we want sin put to death. Right? We want to put to death sin in our lives. I mean, that's what we want. Well, so far we've seen the fruits of repentance are diligence, clearing of oneself, oneself indignation, godly fear, vehement desire. Sixthly, it is zeal. Zeal. As Paul says, what zeal? Zeal means excitement of mind, a fervent spirit. Uh, and, and you have zeal when you love someone or something so much that you would hate anything that goes against what you love so much. 
So now the Corinthians had a zeal for Paul again, to be in fellowship with him again, to submit to his apostolic authority again, and to co-labor with him again. They had had a zeal to walk worthy of their calling. Now they had a zeal for the glory of God, which is the, the desire, God's desire, and everything we do would bring him glory. But they had that zeal again. And, and did not Jesus have zeal for God's glory? Did he not when he cleansed the temple of those who were making merchandise of it in John chapter 2 and then later on in the end of his ministry? So, so the zeal of a true penitent will move him to be on a mission to oust sin out of his life. It'll drive him to do whatever it takes not to fall into that sin again. Now listen, unbelievers have zeal for a lot of things. They have zeal for their favorite team. You'll see it today. Sunday's the big football day, right? They'll have zeal for their favorite team. They have zeal to make money. They'll work around the clock. They'll do put in a lot of sweat and time to make money. Uh, they have zeal for the finer things in life. They have zeal for a hobby. They won't miss whatever they like to do. They won't miss it. They have zeal for that. They have zeal for a political position. They'll, they'll trump their position. They'll champion their position. But they don't have zeal for the glory of God in this life, that's for sure. They don't. But we, the people of God, this should be our zeal. We should have zeal for His glory. We should have zeal for His Son. We should have zeal for His church. We should have zeal for His gospel. We should have zeal for His people. We should have zeal for the lost. This should be driving us. This is what should be like the driving engine in our soul. And Paul will put it very simply in 2 Corinthians 5. He says, the love of Christ, His love for me, compels me to do all I do, to have zeal for all those things, to suffer for his sake. Now finally, the seventh fruit of repentance is what vindication, what vindication. And vindication means to avenge a wrong, to avenge a wrong. Right, when a believer repents, he has a strong desire to see justice served and wrongs righted and restitution made if possible, they seek to pay damages or losses that were incurred because of their sin. Zacchaeus, right? Zacchaeus gave back four times the amount of anything he stole from anybody. Anything he had taken, he's going to give back four times the amount. So if you cause someone physical harm, pay their medical bills. If you've destroyed their property or broke some possession, replace it. Or if you're a handyman, fix it. If you've committed a crime, pay your debt to society. So they want, they want to see their sin avenged, no matter what it costs or what it takes. Uh, and, and here's the thing about this vindication. It, it doesn't protect himself. He doesn't defend himself. And we know from chapter 2 of this book that the Corinthians did discipline the man who went after Paul, but they actually went too far. And so we read in, in chapter 2, verses 6 to 8, this punishment, Paul says, which was inflicted by the majority, is sufficient for such a man. So that on the contrary, you ought rather to forgive and comfort him, lest perhaps such a one be swallowed up with too much sorrow. Therefore, I urge you to reaffirm you love him. So they had zeal now to right the wrong. And they did what they should have done, but they went too far. So, so the, the discipline worked but therefore don't cake it on. Rather, restore the repentant brother. 
And then Paul says at the end of verse 11, in all things you proved yourselves to be clear in this matter. Meaning, because of your repentance and the fruit that has come from your repentance, you are now clear from your sin. Right? From specifically dealing with the brother who sinned against Paul. So again, the, the, these seven watts are a good picture of biblical repentance. They are an excellent evidence that there has been real repentance in someone's life or in someone else's. So when you ask God to forgive you, when you sin against God in some way, shape, or form by sinning against others, this is a good place to look to see, hey, what's going on in my heart? Do I have these seven things? I mean, am I aiming? Is my heart going this way? Or am I just like blowing that whole thing off? Biblical repentance looks like this. All right, that's the fruit. You need fruit. John the Baptist said, bear fruit worthy of repentance. Don't just say, I repent. Let your life show that there is repentance. All right, the fruit from the letter. Secondly, the purpose of the letter, verse 12. Therefore, although I wrote to you, uh, I did not do it for the sake of him who had done the wrong, nor for the sake of him who suffered the wrong, but that our care for you in the sight of God might appear to you. Well, Paul shows the Corinthians uh, the fruit of their repentance and how they responded to his correction in his severe letter, and they responded in a biblical way, and now he tells them the purpose of writing the letter. So he says, I didn't write for the sake of him who did the wrong, or uh, who, who, in this case, was the man who came against Paul, or for the sake of him who suffered the wrong, who in this case would be Paul, although he did have those in mind, of course, but he ultimately wrote the letter, he says, so that our care for you in the sight of God might appear to you. Now, when we read this in the New King James, which is what I just read, it seems like it reads uh, that you would see just how much we care for you. But that is not the best reading. The ESV captures it better. Uh, and, and there it says, I wrote to you that your earnestness for us might be revealed to you in the sight of God. So it's not that you would see my care for you, but actually that you would see how you care for me. That's what he's saying. I want you to see how you care for me. I want you to remember just how much you care for me uh, and that, that, that you actually do love me as evidenced by the 18 months I spent with you night and day teaching you the word of God and how blessed you were and how grateful you were for my ministry and fellowship with you. But you've been taken hostage by the false apostles and false teachers and have bought into their lies and deceptions concerning me. But you know me, and you do love me, and this letter is to remind you of that, that you know me and love me. It's like when a husband and wife are bickering and fighting and feuding, uh, and there becomes a distance between them. No one knows this here, right? No one knows this. But there's a problem for a while. But deep down, deep down in your heart, you know she really loves me. And, and deep down, you know he really loves me. Yeah, we're fighting. Yeah, we're struggling. But deep down, I know she loves me. Do you know that about your spouse, right? That they really love you. You know that. So since deceitfulness has caused the Corinthians to lose sight of their care for Paul and their love for him and their loyalty to him, their attitude was inconsistent with how they really felt about him. So Paul says, I wrote to you in the sight of God so you could see yourselves for yourselves how loyal you really are to me. 
So in essence, Paul wrote this letter to, to, them, to, from, from, to keep them from being carnal and to get them back to spiritual, being spiritual, being spiritual people. Because if they go back to being spiritual people, they'll go back to Paul. Listen, if you care for people, you will confront them like Paul did. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. And so we see the fruit from the letter, secondly, the purpose of the letter, and finally, the joy from the letter, verses 13 to 16. Therefore, we have been comforted in your comfort, and we rejoice exceedingly more for the joy of Titus, because his spirit has been refreshed by you all. For if in anything I have boasted to him about you, I am not ashamed, but as we spoke all things to you in truth, even so our boasting to Titus was found true. And his affections are greater for you as he remembers the obedience of you all, how with fear and trembling you received him. Therefore, I rejoice that I have confidence in you in everything. Well, since the Corinthians have repented and borne fruit to show that, Paul's comforted for their comfort. Uh, and, and what he's saying is, I am comforted by the fact that you are comforted by the discipline you received. I am comforted by the fact that you are comforted by the discipline you have received. Uh, then, he says, he rejoiced exceedingly more or more abundantly because of the joy of Titus. So, so Paul's joy is not only off the charts here because they repented of their sin and there is absolutely a lot of evidence of that, but that it was also evident to Titus as well while he was with them. And, and, and that brought Titus great joy as well. You know, Romans 12, 15 says, rejoice with those who rejoice. You see, Titus knew what was going on there. He knew the trouble in Corinth. He knew that this was grieving to Paul, that they had treated him very poorly. And I am sure on his way there, on his way to, to Corinth, he's praying and praying uh, that that the saints would receive this very hard letter with a broken heart and that they would receive him as the Lord's servant. And by God's grace, they did and they did. And that refreshed Titus. <laughs> and, and is it not refreshing to our souls when a brother or a sister in sin repents and is restored to God and to the body of Christ? I'm telling you, there's great joy. And then Paul says, if I have boasted to Titus about you, I'm not ashamed of that. I'm not ashamed of that. And, and I can see Paul saying to Titus, listen, Titus, I am really persuaded of better things of the Corinthian saints. I'm hopeful. I'm hopeful they will do the right thing because I believe they are the real deal. I've seen the work of God in their lives. I've seen the grace of God in their lives. I have spent many hours teaching them and praying with them and fellowshipping with them. Then Paul says, as I spoke all things to you in truth, even so my boasting to Titus was found true. So as I shared with you, as I conveyed the truth of the gospel to you, and, and all you got was truth, I never told you anything that wasn't true, well, so too my boasting to Titus of you, well, that was true too. That was found true too. And you are indeed the real deal, and you do love me. And you did repent. And the proof of that is absolutely obvious to everybody. Then he says, because of the genu genuine repentance, Titus's affections for them are even more greater. Even greater. 
He says, his affections are greater for you as he remembers the obedience of you all, how with great fear and trembling you received him. So as Titus remembers their obedience, because remember, he's got this pretty difficult task. He's going there, and he's going to hammer them with this really hard letter, calling them on the carpet for their sin, and he's going to sit there and try to work with them to get them to repent, to see their error, to see how they've gone against God and gone against Paul, and, and hopefully there would be genuine repentance. And that's his job. He's sent there for that task. And they do. And they receive him. And they repent. And he's overjoyed. He remembers their obedience. And he can't help but love them. Even more so. I loved you already, but now seeing how you respond biblically to discipline, I love you more. Now my heart is like overflowing for you. And obedience here means they obeyed. They obeyed what Paul told them to do in his severe letter. Thus they humbled themselves uh, before the word of God. They obeyed. They obeyed Paul because they humbled themselves before the word of God. And is this, this not a sign of love to God? Right? And also to love to Paul. It's a sign. Jesus said in John 14, He who has my commandments and keeps them is he who loves me. Right? God doesn't save you because of obedience. Because you follow his commands. But the evidence that he saved you is that you love him and follow his commands. Well, Paul finishes verse 16 saying, Therefore, I rejoice that I have confidence in you in everything. So because of their obedience, Paul could have confidence in how they would deal with their sin, how they would treat ministers who expose sin, and how they will deal with the charlatans who have infiltrated the church in Corinth. So their repentance just blesses Paul's socks off. He wants them to know it. He wants them to know it. Well, let me close by asking two questions. Two questions. And the first one is this. Is there fruit from your repentance? Is there fruit from your repentance? I'm not saying, do you say, I'm sorry, Lord, forgive me, I shouldn't have done that, I shouldn't have said that, I shouldn't have taken that, whatever, whatever. Is there fruit from your repentance? When you sin and are convicted of sin and ask God to forgive you of your sin, like the Corinthians, is there fruit from your repentance? Is there diligence and earnestness to make right your wrongs? Is there a quest to walk in righteousness? Is there a clearing of yourself? An admittance? Are you, is there an admitting or a desire to clear yourself from the guilt and shame of your sin? Is there an indignation against yourselves for your sin? Do you hate the very sin you fell into? Do you hate it? Are you mad at yourself for sinning against God? Is there a fear and a reverence for the very God you've sinned against? And a fear never to fall into that sin again. And is there a vehement desire, a longing to be reconciled to God and to those you have sinned against? And is there a zeal for righteousness and holiness in your life? And is there a vindication in your life that you need to avenge the wrong that you've committed? You see, biblical repentance is always followed by fruit. And if there is no fruit, then there has been no repentance. If there is no fruit, there has been no repentance. So the question for you today is, is there fruit from your repentance? And if there is not, then you need to repent of your repentance because it's not biblical, right? 
Pastor, you know, I'm pointing one this way, but I got three coming back. Right? Is there fruit? Second question. Are you like Titus and experience heartfelt concern for the spiritual being of others? Are you like Titus and experience heartfelt concern for the spiritual being of others? Or are you so wrapped up in your own world, in your own life, so much going on in your life that you have no concern what goes on in the body of Christ at all? Right? Are you so wrapped up in your own world that you rarely intercede on anyone else's behalf? So do you feel anguish over the sin and self-righteousness of other believers? And then what sacrifices are you willing to make to help a sinning saint grow, become accountable, and increase in the knowledge of the Lord? Listen, we're to confess our sins to each other. All right? We are brothers and sisters of the same God and Father, bought by the same blood, in the same family. We'll be together forever, praising and worshiping God in a glorified state which none of us can even really comprehend at this point. Do we not care about each other's growth? Do we not care that some of the sheep are going this way when they should be here and going that way? Will you say something? Will you approach? Will you pray? Or will you like, too busy, busy schedule, got my own family, my own problems. What will you do? Are you like a Titus? Or no? Now, if you're not in Christ today, if you're not a Christian today, then you absolutely need to repent of your sin. You need to confess your sin before God and plead with Him for mercy. And if you truly do, what will follow is a change of mind and a change of attitude and a change of life. And you will, you will go from being disinterested and unloving and an uncaring sinner before God to a lover of God, a lover of righteousness, a lover of people, particularly the people of God. And you will know what it means to truly live. Amen? Amen? Don't walk out of here in the state you walked in if you're not a believer. Don't say, I don't believe that garbage. Well, you know what? You don't have to believe anything. But I'm telling you, there will come a day you will know every single one of these words were true. And you will know that God doesn't mess around. Whatever a man sows, he will reap. You don't want to reap the wages of your sins. No. Cry out to God. Submit yourself to God. Call on Him to save your soul and watch what He'll do. If you think you're saved and you're not saved, if there's no biblical repentance in your life, you're not saved. You're very hard, Pastor Peter. No, I'm just telling you biblically. There must be fruit. There's no fruit in your repentance. You're not saved. None of this means anything to you. Those seven things, those watts are like knots, not watts, they're knots. You need to ask God to save your soul. But if you sincerely do, you sincerely cry out, he's going to lavish you with life and that abundantly. Let's pray. Father, please.